right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here. I've got to start by apologizing. It is taking me way too long to get Jason Bone back on the horn. I've wanted to do it in person. I've always always wanted to do interviews in person. Things aren't really that conducive for that in this current environment, if you will. I hate doing interviews over the phone, but this was flames. It's the it's flames. It's everything you would hope it to be. I'm just sorry that it's taken this long. We need to have him back. I'll say it now. I'm vowing to have him back uh, back on before another year passes it's just it's got everything it's funny stories some serious stories it's it's a hybrid of many different things and i promise you're going to enjoy it and speaking of hybrids how about that there is a callaway hybrid for just about everyone there's for better players the maverick pro uh it's this shaping and trajectory could be right up your alley i'm thinking about trying one of these things i recently put an x-forge driving iron in the bag i really liked it but seeing a couple pros that i wouldn't have expected to have hybrids Make me kind of wonder if um, I'm not, I'm definitely not too good for a hybrid. Uh, Mavic Pro and Apex hybrids are available all the way down to the two hybrid. But what about the people who need more help? For these golfers, the Maverick Max has a larger footprint, higher launch trajectory, even goes all the way to the eight hybrid. I hope Randy can hear me in the other room because uh, it's about time that he starts looking to some of these hybrid options. The Ocho, if you're one of these people uh, that just can't make a fairway work, the Callaway Super Hybrid could be the answer to your prayers. It was even in a club professional's bag at the PGA Championship last week. Uh, it's the hybrid that will make your fairway woods nervous about their place in your set makeup. So on top of all these options, there's a standard Maverick, which just is an all-out distance machine with a medium launch trajectory. So no matter what style of game you play, Callaway's got a hybrid that can work for you. Check out their full arsenal of hybrids today at CallawayGolf.com. That's CallawayGolf.com. Without any further delay, here is Jason Bone. All right, we're recording this uh, PGA Championship week. It's coming out at a later date, uh, so we're not going to pick your brain on uh, you know too many predictions. But is this your live golf TV debut? Uh, this is one of my live golf TV debuts. Yes, this is my first time working with ESPN. Uh, so I've done some Sky Sports golf, which was a ton of fun. I just uh, I enjoy the British humor. I got to tell you that all the producers, it was awesome. And it's really unique because of uh, the whole coronavirus. I mean, I'm in my house doing it. So it's going to be a really unique situation. Oh, I don't think I realized, yeah, you were going to be, uh, how does that work? I mean, you get people buzzing in your ear the whole time. How are you even going to be able to kind of navigate all that from home? I mean, like I said, I'm a complete rookie at this uh, experience. So I'm, I'm just going to be watching the screen. I'm going to be, I'm going to have people bugging me in my ear, kind of feed me as to what's coming and, and where we're going. I will do featured groups. So I'm, my first group is I've got uh, Thursday, I'll have uh, Dustin Johnson, Jordan Spieth and um, Justin Rose. Is it hard for you to dial back and like be professional on the air and not, you know, let out any curse words or anything like that? Uh, I will have to watch my tongue a little bit. Yeah, I'll be honest with that. But uh, no, I think it's, yeah, I mean, it's all kind of the product of the environment you're in, right? Like, and you got to know when you can let go and, and when you, and I'll, I'll understand that. Now, I think being at home, this could present maybe some challenges. So I'm going to have to be cautious as to uh, what I say. All right. Well, I know I just listened back to our episode from last year. We ended it with saying, you know, I think we left some good stories on the table. 
most notably in my mind, you know, we talked about your million dollar ace and, and I advise people to go back and listen to last year's episode first as well. But you made a, an ace as an amateur. You won a million dollars. You turned professional, uh, had this great celebration at the bar, you know, that night. But you told me a story later that night after the mics were already off. What did you guys do after that trip? Where did you go and in what kind of vehicle? Oh, man, you want the Mardi Gras story. So, uh, <laughs> yes, um, so I'd never been to Mardi Gras. It was, so I hit the hole in one November, and, you know, after I kind of figured out, like, what I was doing and where I was going with all this, uh, I told all my buddies, I was like, hey, you know, I'll take you all to Mardi Gras. I'll pay for the rooms. You guys just buy the cocktails, and we'll, you know, we'll call it all even. So I uh, started to make some phone calls. This is back, you know, early 90s. I mean, nobody has a cell phone. I mean, you're just picking up. I mean, I, I honestly can't even remember to tell you how I got uh, telephone numbers other than calling directories and asking for, like, the Hilton. And so I'm calling all these numbers in New Orleans, and I am like, uh, I'm maybe a month out, maybe three weeks out from Mardi Gras. And I'm like, hey, you know, I just need a couple of rooms. And, and people are just laughing. I mean, on the phone, they're just like, you got to be nuts, man. I mean, like, you know, this I mean, this is the biggest celebration uh, maybe in the United States. And you're calling three weeks thinking you're going to get a prime hotel room. So uh, I, I, needless to say, I come to find out, like, there's no chance. I mean, the, the closest place I think I could have gotten would have been like 40 minutes away. You know, we're 19 years old. We would have been legal at that time to consume alcohol. And so I was like, there's no way we would, we wouldn't be, we couldn't drive. So I was like, all right, well, we can't do it. So I'm sitting in this finance class one day and like this big light bulb goes off in my head and I'm just like, oh man, I got a great idea. What I'm going to do is I want to pack everybody in a U-Haul and I'm going to drive the U-Haul down there and we're going to go to Mardi Gras out of the back of this U-Haul. And I just was like, this is brilliant. So I, I'm just thinking, you know, 19 years old, wasn't really thinking, but I was kind of thinking. And uh, so I had a friend of mine who, you know, he was kind of partial mechanic that I met in the dorm. Like he was always tinkering on cars and stuff. And so I came up with the idea, well, I'll go rent this in town, the biggest U-Haul I could possibly rent in town rental, which was like at that time, it was like $29.95 a day. And I'm like, I will put all of my apartment furniture in the back of this U-Haul and we will just, I'll take all my buddies and go. And I asked the guy, I was like, can you unhook the odometer on this U-Haul? And he's like, absolutely, I can do that. So, <laughs> so I'm thinking like, you know, we're going to put like six miles in the U-Haul, but actually go to New Orleans and back. And so I round up all, I round up the few guys that I told, hey, we're going to go to Mardi Gras. And one of the gentlemen was a Swedish guy, and he didn't drink at all. And he's, I, I asked him, I was like, hey, would you like to go with us to Mardi Gras? Because he was like, I would love to see this experience coming from Sweden. He was like, but I, rule number one, is, the only rule is I drive and nobody else is allowed in the front. And we were like, uh, loser, uh, hell yeah. I mean, you got it, buddy. This got is great. Now, now we got a designated driver to Mardi Gras. And so... He piles in the front of this U-Haul. We all get in there. I got like these bunk beds and we had uh, battery-operated lanterns. We had a keg in um, just a tub of ice and just, and we had fans, battery-operated fans. I was like, I'm a flat, absolute genius right now because I said, we're going to go to Mardi Gras for $29.95 a day. You know, I was like, this is brilliant. Split how many so, ways, too. Yeah, I mean, I, I told them I'd take care of the U-Haul, you know, and they just, uh, so we got in this car. Everybody was so excited, and, you know, we started partying on the way out of Tuscaloosa, and our my Swedish friend, Freddie, just decided he was absolutely going to slam on the brakes, 
and just toy with us. And we just go bouncing around the back of this U-Haul. Maybe, like, not very bright, but we were just dying laughing, having a ton of fun. And at no point, we so we go down to Mardi Gras. And, and to this day, or all the years that I played in New Orleans, which is kind of ironic that that was one of my victories, was in New Orleans, was the Zurich Classic. But I would stay downtown. I would drive over the bridge, which we parked this U-Haul underneath, uh, which we were able to talk in to one of the parking attendants and you know just pay this guy off and just let us park our u-haul there and he was awesome he kind of helped us look out for it so nobody would you know break in and take anything and we get down there and we're we're just i mean it, it, it's nuts we're partying we're having so much fun i mean you know as you've seen in all pictures and anybody can possibly imagine i mean it's just you know shoulder to shoulder everywhere you go down in bourbon street and we're having just an absolute blast at no point during the whole ride down there, which was a good six and a half hours, probably took us eight in the way and how many times we had to stop because we, the back of the door had to be cracked, right? Uh, so that we could get any sort of sunlight in there. And mainly, the main reason why, so we could use the bathroom. Oh my God. And so we just had to, you know, kind of pee out the back corner and it was just <laughs> flying out, you know, because we'd be pounding. I mean, we didn't have cell phone. We had no way to communicate. So every now and then we'd stop and, you know, we'd open the door and, and, you know, get out. But that was our only method of ways to use the bathroom was to kind of go out the back corner uh, of the little door. So we're down in there. We're just having a great time. At no point, none of us, not one of us was smart enough to think, where are we going to shower? Like, where are we going to use the bathroom? How are we going to brush our teeth? I mean, none of that ever hit us. And so it was a ton of fun for three days. We slept in this U-Haul. We were just nasty. I mean, it, it was, but the going down, we thought we were, the, everybody thought I was a genius. Coming back, everybody thought I was the biggest idiot on the face of the planet. Everybody was just disgusted. We were just sick. We were, you know, we had, oh, it was just awful. We had thrown up in the u-haul i mean it was just it was just it was awful the u-haul was just absolutely trashed so i get back to tuscaloosa we drive this u-haul to a dump i take all of my furniture that was in that u-haul i just dumped it out into this dump and we sprayed the back of it and we rehooked the odometer and turned it in for a four-day rental. So, I mean, like, to think that I did, you know, Mardi Gras for 150 bucks uh, for four days was pretty pretty impressive. So that was... <laughs> it cost you the furniture, yeah. though. It did cost me the furniture, which I, I, if you would have seen this furniture and uh, anything around this furniture, you did you would not have wanted it. So after, after five guys had spent, uh, you know, four days in the back of a U-Haul, it was pretty nasty. Well... You know, the story you told again about having to give up your amateur status and whatnot, and I'm, I'm, if I'm reading it right on your Wikipedia page, it now says that the USGA has exemptions for hole-in-ones in terms of accepting prizes. Do you know about this? I do know about this, yes. And uh, it's, it is absolutely true. It's so Mrs. Smith can hit a hole-in-one in the 15th hole, collect her Cadillac, and still play in the Ladies' Club Championship, which makes a lot of sense because it is completely potluck. And at the time... Had this rule been this, this, my situation would have been different. I would have been able to compete and play college golf. I would not have had to turn pro. But at, the, at that time that I hit the home one, it was anything over that exceeded $500 in value. Right. Uh, then you had lost your amateur status. So. Well, would no. that, how would that have affected you? I mean, I, I, I wouldn't I, have gone to Mardi Gras, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I probably, it, it would have been a massive effect, to be honest. I just think it would have, I would have been the student athlete, right? And I went from being a student athlete to just a student. And that was, 
a pretty really cool experience for me. I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful that I had that opportunity because I think I enjoyed things at a level that I might not have been able to enjoy them as a student athlete. Now, as a student athlete, I really enjoyed things that I would have never been able to enjoy as just a student also. So, I mean, it was a great, I had a great combination. I wish it might've been a little bit longer as the student athlete part, but um, that's just the way it panned out. Well, part of me hates wasting, uh, not wasting, but spending any of the time we get to chat about anything serious, but somehow we missed, totally missed a huge life event that happened for you uh, in on the, basically on the golf course a few years ago and that you had a heart attack. Uh, so I, I'm wondering if you can fill the audience in kind of on the details of the story, because rereading it honestly kind of scared the hell out of me because it sounds like you didn't even know what was happening or that it was happening. And so kind of take us through that timeline and what, what that experience was like. Yeah, that was, um, it was a pretty crazy experience in my life, to be honest. I, I just never thought, and I mean, I'll be flat out honest with you and I'm honest with myself. I may not have taken care of myself in a situation that, um, others would or, but I did everything pretty much in moderation, I would say, you know, I mean, if I had alcohol or if I had nicotine or if I did those things, they were kind of all in moderation. It wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't do anything in my opinion that was just fully excessive, but I'm playing at the Honda Classic. Uh, this was four years ago, so it would have been uh, 16. I mean, the Honda, we're, we're playing down there, it's probably the bear's trap is probably one of the most difficult stretches of golf we play the whole golf course is just hard i mean you can hit it in the water at any point make a double bogey and you're missing the cut and i just wasn't feeling that great a couple weeks earlier i had the flu and i took a week off and i got the flu out in pebble beach and i flew home and i, I kind of sat in my basement and just kind of i really literally like quarantined myself from my family and then uh went i felt better i went down to the honda classic and uh, this was Friday morning. I woke up and I was kind of not, I wasn't feeling great, but I wasn't feeling awful. And I was like, all right, I just, I got to get through today. I was kind of right around the cut line and I can't remember exactly what I shot, but I know that coming in to the last four holes, I had to play them an even par to make the cut. And the whole day as I walked, I just kind of felt like, all right, you know, when, when, like when your grandma, when she tries to hug you, but she just doesn't have anything and she's just squeezing you and you just get this little tiny squeeze. Well, that's kind of what it felt like every time I would take a really deep breath. It wasn't anything painful. It wasn't anything like strong. It was just like my grandma was just trying to give me a little bit of a hug. And I did that the whole day, you know, kind of as I got through. And then the last few holes, I had some stress going in and just, I made some great pars and Anyhow, I get done with the round and I'm like, you know, I don't really feel that good. And so I'm in the scoring trailer and I know we have access on tour to, you know, all kinds of doctors and things. And I was like, hey, look, I probably just got to get a Z-Pack. I got to get me some erythromycin, something inside of me and to knock out whatever's going on in my body so I can get through this weekend on tour. And so I asked the scoring official, I was like, hey, can you call you know, some doctors, paramedics, whatever, just, I just need some, I'm not feeling great. I'm going to go in the locker room. I'll just be sitting in there. If you could just call somebody and have them come down and meet me, that'd be great. So I'm sitting in the locker room and these paramedics come in and they're like, Hey, how you doing? I'm like, yeah, pretty good. I just have a, you know, kind of every time I take a deep breath, you know, I just kind of feel like my grandma's giving me a hug. Not, I'm not, I just don't feel like myself. I just know something's just a little bit off. And I just was kind of hoping to get maybe, you know, a prescription to get, you know, some sort of antibiotic and let me knock this thing out. And so these guys, you know, they're, they're doing their job. They're really diligent. They're great at what they do. And they kind of hooked me up. They listened to my chest and then they listened to my heart. And then they're like, hey, we're going to hook you up to like this little EKG. And 
So they did. And while I'm hooked up with this EKG, the guy says, hey, listen, I think you probably need, you know, I think we'd like you to go to the hospital. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, I appreciate it. you guys are, you know, maybe a little bit overreacting. I said, all right, I'll tell you what, I'll go, but I'm staying right on site. So let me go take a shower, you know, get rested. And then I'll go, you know, I'll go check myself in or whatever. And he's like, I don't think you understand. He goes, we're going to put you on the back of the stretcher and we're going to take you to the ER. And I'm like, really? And I'm like, man, I, I just want a Z-Pack. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not looking for anything. And so they, they do, they strap me in, into this gurney or whatever they call it. They, they wheel me in the back of this ambulance. And on all my friends and everybody, I'm right out in the middle of the club. And they're just kind of looking at me, you okay? And I'm like, I'm fine, man. You know, I said, I, I, I said, I think this is an overreaction. And I'm in the back of this ambulance. And the paramedic is, is talking over a walkie-talkie to, uh, I guess, I'm assuming the hospital. And... All of a sudden, they said, hey, we want an IV in both of his arms. And I just looked at this guy, and I was like, what the fuck? I mean, come on, dude. I, said, I'm just, I just want a Z-Pack. You know what I mean? I'm just like yelling at this guy. I'm like, I said, I know we got great insurance on tour, but come on. This is ridiculous. So I, at no point did they ever tell me anything that was going on. They really were great. They were like, hey, the, the, the hospital, you know, they kept me very calm. So I go in, we're wheeled in the ER, and I hear on the loud speaker above out in this emergency room they said cardiac arrest in room six and as i'm wheeling i look up and they're wheeling me into room six and that is how i found out that i was having a heart attack mm. i mean as i just it was amazing like it was so subtle that i just would have never thought that um you know that was what a heart attack i would think you're having a heart attack like I mean, it's Sanford and Son, you know, like, I'm coming to you, Wheezy. I mean, you're grabbing your heart, you know, you're just screaming, like your body's just screaming at you, like, shut down, just stop doing what you're doing. Nothing like that at all, so. Well, the reason why it scared the hell out of me is this, this something not too similar, but somewhat similar happened to me like two years ago. I had like been experiencing some dizzy spells and, and went to a doctor and they gave me an EKG and the guy like looked at it and he's like, all right, this doesn't look right. And then gave me another EKG and then came in and said, I'm sending an ambulance for you. Like I'm sending you to the hospital right now. And I was like, drove myself there and I wasn't even feeling the, the pains that you were feeling, but I ended up, I, I was like, no dude, like I can, I can drive myself there. And they, I drove there and they thought I was on drugs. The, the guy had called ahead and said, you know, we have a potential heart attack victim driving himself to the uh, hospital and I feel totally fine. And so they like, as soon as I get there, they like wheel me in, there's doctors everywhere hooking me up to all this stuff. And I don't, I, I'm afraid I'm I actually might be having a heart attack, but I don't feel like I am. And I, it's kind of almost like an eerily similar to your story of like, you were actually having it. They thought I was having one and I was told they, it ended up, they explained it away later, kind of what the issue was, but Gosh, man, it just like scares the crap out of me to hear it. And I, I believe what's the uh, the artery called? Is it the or what you went through is called the widowmaker? Yeah, my widowmaker was ninety nine percent blocked. Oh my god! So yeah, it was just it was a rear. It was weird. I guess to your point and in, in your experience is like anything that you just feel is different. You just kind of when when it comes to that, you just kind of got to get it checked out because my doctor basically told me I was the story of you're a nap away from never waking up. And that's just kind of what happens. And you hear that story all the time with like, he just didn't feel well and he went and laid down. And basically when your heart can't eject 
your ejection fraction of like how fast and how hard it can push your blood back out, it goes backwards and it goes up into your brain and you're taking a nap and then boom, you know, you're just, it just, you're done. On your way into the emergency room, I understand that there was, you were concerned about your status in the tournament. Uh, you were placing phone calls, trying to figure some things out. Do you remember this part of the story? I certainly do. Yeah, it was, it, it was pretty amazing because I, I remember that, so at the time, they had a rule that if 78 players or more made the cut, then there was a secondary cut on Saturday. And so then, you know, people would be eliminated. And it, now currently those rules have changed. But I kind of didn't like that rule because I was one of those guys that like, if I just could play, maybe I could pick up something. You know, even if I was in last place, I might get this sensation or this feel that could carry him into next week. So I wanted to play all four days. I made a cut. I want to play all four days. I don't care whether I'm in last place. There are some guys who didn't have that philosophy, and I understand why the tour needed to change those rules. But anyhow, that's a whole other story. But I am right at, I'm looking at the cut line. I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm going to be like the 78th guy. And then I'm like, okay, if I withdraw, then before the cut is made, well, I might not get my pension credit, which the PGA Tour is a phenomenal pension. And every time you make a cut, you got a cuts plan credit. And I was like, but I made the cut. Just because I'm having a heart attack, I'm not going to be able to play tomorrow. Doesn't mean I didn't deserve to get that. So I'm like, I don't know what to do. I, I know there's no way I'm going to be able to play golf tomorrow because the doctor, like I'm going to have a stint in me. and I'm probably going to have surgery that night or the next day. And I'm like, so I'm like, but if I withdraw now, then th that could change the whole numbers of the cut. And I said, I'm not really sure how to do this. So I pick up the phone and... I call uh, Slugger White, who's our, our main rules official that week. And I'm like, Slugger, um, I'm having a heart attack, and I'm in this uh, ER, and I'm on the cut line, but I don't know whether to withdraw, not withdraw. I mean, wh what do I do? And so I'm like, he goes, well, you know, he tried to explain that same scenario to me. If you withdraw before uh, the cut is officially made, then, you know, you might, and I'm like, okay, well, here's the deal. I'm 99% sure I'm not going to play tomorrow, but... I won't know that until the cut's made. So, <laughs> and, and so I just, and he, I said, I just want you to kind of know that if I'm the 78th guy, that there's only 77 guys now going to play, they might not have to have a secondary cut. And I'm like, so I'm looking at also for my other uh, competitors, because I know there are some guys who would love to just, you know, play one more round and get, go home, you know, get, get their, get their money, their last place, get their, you know, their one FedEx point or whatever it might be, accumulate to be. And then just, you know, they get home a day or their family. But I wasn't that guy. And I also know there are guys out there that are like, hey, you know what? This gives me an opportunity to try a new putter, new driver, new equipment that I've been wanting to put in the bag. And now I can test it in competition. And so anyhow, it worked out. I withdrew after the cut line. I got my pension credit and only 77 guys played that weekend. So they didn't have a secondary cut. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Precision Pro. You guys have been uh, buying up all the rangefinders they have and continue to get great feedback from them. And they're actually going to be the presenting sponsor of Taurus Sauce Season 6, which we're off filming right now. Uh, right now, the NX7 Pro Slope on sale for $219. Our listeners can receive an extra 20 off using promo code NOLAYINGUP. That means a brand new rangefinder with slope for $199, one of the best deals on the market. You know Precision Pro Golf is the only rangefinder that offers free battery replacement services. You're getting not just a rangefinder, you're signing up for a lifetime service. Uh, everyone needs a rangefinder they can trust to know the precise distance to their target. You never want to be the guy 
asking the other guys in the group uh, if you can use their rangefinder, if they can gun a number for you. Just you need, you need everyone needs their own rangefinder. They've also got a brand new NX9 slope. We just got our hands on these. Uh, I'm actually on my way to go test it out for the first time here today. Very excited about this. A lot more to come with Precision Pro in terms of their app development. And uh, it's it's a company you're going to want to be involved with. And we are thrilled to have them as a sponsor and uh, moving forward as well. So go to precisiongolf.com. Use coupon code no laying up at checkout for $20 off our favorite range finder. Swing with confidence. Hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Let's get back to Jason Bone. All right. You got to break down how good this pension is. I, I honestly couldn't even begin to explain how, how the PJ Tour pension works. So let us uh, let the listeners in on how like, some or all of that works. Okay. So the PJ Tour pension is like maybe one of the most phenomenal pensions ever put together in sports and maybe in business. And I give so much credit to Commissioner Tim Fincham for doing this. He pulled some strings and he worked his tail off to get us an opportunity to know that um, we're going to be able to survive post uh, when we lose our tour card because of the pension that we're going to end up collecting. And a lot of it comes from your performance of like FedEx Cup. So at the end of the FedEx Cup season, you'll see a guy uh, initially, he was winning $10 million and he would only get paid $1 million of that in out in cash initially and $9 million of it would go into his pension. So all the FedEx Cup payout all went into your pension. So you're accumulating and the, the tour is managing this pension, which is now well over a billion dollars. Uh, and that's a B for all of these players, which is amazing to me that um, all this money, because it's a nonprofit, it's coming from television, it's coming from the FedEx Cup plan. And then every single cut you make on the PGA Tour is worth X amount of dollars. And like, I, I could get this number wrong. So I'm just going to say, we're going to say, let's just round it up and say it's $5,000. So they're going to put $5,000 in your pension uh, every single cut you make. And after that, which I think that number's probably a little bit high, it might be around $3,500. But I, 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 like I said, I could get it wrong. So after you make 15 cuts on the PGA Tour in the same season, that number doubles. So you could uh, potentially, if the number is five, it's now 10 grand. And that's every single cut you make the rest of the season. So you add up all those cuts that you've made throughout your career and those things are just compiling and drawing interest on a yearly basis. And it's, um, I mean, when you, when you look at your pension at the end of your career, I mean, it's amazing the amount of money that the tour is going to give you after you play golf. And it's really enabling us and helping people so that you don't hear, in my opinion, of the story where the guy, hey, you know, he's making a lot of money. He's making a few million bucks a year, but he's spending it. He's paying his taxes. He's getting out. And now he comes out, he loses his tour card when he's 44 years old. And all of a sudden you see him like selling stuff on the street. And like, I don't think that will happen on, on the PGA Tour because of the pension. Starting when you're 45 years old, if you don't play 15 full events a year, you start pulling your pension. So so you've started pulling your pension. I've been point. pulling my pension, yes. And it's, it's a phenomenal uh, draw. And it's great. It comes in on a monthly basis. And then it's for me to do what I decide to do with it which is great and it's just um i don't know i, I for any pga tour guy who's out there and to, to receive your full pension you need to be vested over a five-year period so it is a difficult task it's not like you know this yeah you just go out there for a year and you you become fully vested that's not how it works they you need to you know produce and show that you've been a part of the tour and the organization and you've added value to that organization for multiple years uh in a row so I think it's 
it's a great setup. Um, but I also just, I mean, I just know that guys like you hear sad stories of, you know, guys, you know, they, they didn't spend their money wisely. They didn't invest wisely. And I just, I don't know that you're going to see too many of the, uh, PGA tour guys, once they kind of reach into that 45 zone, um, really, you're not going to see them out. You're not going to hear the, the sad news. They're going to be able to take care of themselves and their families. Well, what what happens if you if it's not fully vested? What I guess what happens with it? You're partially vested on every cuts that you make is fully vested. But like your FedEx Cup money, you need to play five years without losing your tour card for a consecutive for more than two years consecutive. Does that make sense? So, uh, but in yeah, that money would then just be kicked back into the pension. I I couldn't tell you specifically where it goes. But I do know that the Tiger Woods' pension, I mean, not that Tiger Woods is ever going to have to worry about money, but what he's done, his pension, I mean, people would be blown away by if, uh, I, you know, and I, I personally don't know his numbers, but only seeing what my numbers might be and then correlating that to what his numbers are, I, would, I just, I can't even imagine what that guy's pension is. Well, how, how does like your pension amount compare to your career earnings? I'm saying for you personally, like is 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 that kind of what we're kind of money we're talking about here? Less, more, around the same? Uh, I would say, you, I, you know, I would say anywhere by the probably the end of the time, based on how well you played in the FedEx Cup, you could be anywhere between forty, where I don't know, say thirty and fifty percent of your uh, earnings. Okay, I guess that would be kind of how your pension comes out, which is, um, you know, I mean, it's basically to me, it's just basically just free money mm-hmm. you know what i mean like you just you you've already you, you're out there earning and grinding it and then somebody's stacking it behind you you know and then not and and you're just like oh wow you get these statements in the mail you're like oh that's nice you know great you know whatever you never think you're gonna need it and then all of a sudden when you start pulling it you're like wow this is great that's kind of nice so yeah so were yeah. there huge lifestyle changes for you after that uh, yes. Uh, medications are awesome. Like, I mean, like I will probably be on medication. I didn't have very high cholesterol, so I'm not on like a cholesterol. Uh, I am on a very small dose of it, but blood thinners, that type of thing, I'll probably be on the rest of my life. You know, the foods that I eat are, I'm more cautious, I would say. I'm, I pay more attention. Now, look, do I still eat red meat? Do I say, oh, hell yeah. I mean, like you still got to live your life, right? But I just, I would notice that like, okay, if we were out on tour, you know, we might go out to a restaurant. I might eat red meat, you know, three times a week or two times a week. And now, you know, it might be once every couple weeks or, you know, so it's those kind of things. I mean, you just kind of, yeah, I pay a little bit more attention, you know, and I just think as a golfer, we're all, we're pretty active. We do a lot of walking, you know, we're not with the exception of Lumpy. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. He's one of my best buddies in the world. So, but uh, we're all fairly fit, you know what I mean? And we are kind of fit in a walking shape, you know, I should say, maybe not in a, you know, running shape, but I think our heart, I think it, it mainly we just carry a lot of stress and if you don't get rid of that stress. So I think that was the biggest thing for me, probably from uh, a lifestyle changes. Hey, just eliminate it. You know what I mean? If something stresses you out, I, I, I really, I don't really care anymore about a lot of things that I think I used to get really wound up about. At first I got really irritated even right after the heart attack. And I think it was just, it took me some time just to evaluate myself and be like, Hey, it doesn't matter. You know, that guy in front of me, just because he's not going at that light, it doesn't matter. You know, not to get all worked up and not to do those things, because I think all those little things in life just add up, and that probably caused a lot of my issues was stress. So. Well, 
I, you know, any chance I get in any of these situations to ask the question of what what you would have done differently or what people, you know, if it helps someone down the line at some point, that's what I feel like I'm doing my job. So what could you have done to have prevented that happening? Or is there anything that, you know, you learned as a part of that say, man, I really wish I'd have got this checked out earlier or blah, blah, blah. Is there anything you could have done to prepare for that? Yes, 100%. I think I could have been more on top of my yearly physicals. I think I could have paid more attention to that. You know, we think, hey, we're out there, we're athletes, we're walking, we're, in, you're, you know, we're fairly fit. And I was young, you know, so I mean, like to be, you know, 43 years old, I mean, that, I was pretty young to be experiencing a heart attack, I thought. And I just think that, you know, if you've got, if you've ever heard of it in your family history, and I think if you, no matter what, everyone has stresses and it's how you kind of deal with them. And I just think that, that that's the, the, probably the major cause of most of the heart attacks and the fact that, I mean, there are women and men who eat biscuits and gravy and smoke two and a half packs of cigarettes every day that'll never have a heart attack. And then there are people who run triathlons that will. It's, it's a genetic thing. I strongly believe in that. So I just think that once you get that 30, 35 mark, hey, you just do your yearlies and you just pay attention to it. You just stay on top of it and you listen to what your doctor has to say and I think you can prevent a lot. Yeah. What was it like coming back to golf after that? A little bit scary. I'll be honest. Like, uh, I came back, uh, I, uh, maybe eight weeks later or something. I came back and I played Hilton head, which was one of my all time favorite places to go on tour. And, uh, it was a good golf course because it's not super long and powerful and I could just kind of dink it around and keep it in the fairway. And But yeah, I was pretty nervous as to how am I going to handle myself? Like, am I going to get really stressed out? Am I going to, you know, like, uh, like, am I going to have a heart, another heart attack? And those things were kind of all kind of slipped in the back of the mind, but not really um, like kind of forefront. So I think after a couple of weeks and, you know, a couple, like I, I told myself, I remember specifically telling myself, do not get upset. It does not matter. A bogey is not going to affect you. And I'm like, I'm going to do this. I don't care about any shot. And on the third hole, I was already cussing myself. So, I mean, like, it didn't do me any good. The game's inside of you. You can't get it out. You're just grinding and fighting the whole time anyhow. So, I mean, like, uh, but uh, I well, think I, You I, were I, 15th on the FedEx Cup when it happened. I mean, you were, you were off to a great start that year. And that's, that's where... It, I'm just curious as to how it really related to, you know, your golf game going going from that point forward. I think it, it kind of, that was the best golf I ever played in my life. And from that point on, I never really recovered uh, in the golf world. I just, I don't think I ever played to the level that I was capable of at, from that point on. And I, I can't tell you whether that's physical or uh, psychological. I really don't know. I do know that uh, I learned a lot that you know, life is a lot more important than, uh, than your job and that golf itself. And so maybe that, maybe I kind of subconsciously gave in a little bit and was like, Hey, look, I don't, I don't want to work that hard anymore. I want to see my kids grow up. I want to spend the, you know, the rest of my life with my wife. I just, uh, I don't know that I can't, I can't be honest and tell you that, but I can know that my game was never the same after. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And it doesn't sound like there's you don't say that with regret, you know, it almost seems like an important perspective, you know, I guess you are, you made $16 million in your career at, at any point did that, uh, I don't know, did, was there diminishing returns as far as really working hard to keep playing golf as compared to like a balance towards family home life? 
Uh, I don't know. I've always overachieved in everything I did. And coming from a, a small town in Pennsylvania, going to college, hitting a hole in one, like my life just like, in all honesty, I couldn't be more blessed in the way that it happened, in the roads, in the turns that I took. If I were to ever go back, I would never change one thing. I am super grateful for every opportunity and every start I ever got on the PGA Tour, all the people I met from the PGA Tour. And I mean, to be 100% honest, at the end of the road, I know that I'm going to look back and just be like, hey, I don't care how many trophies I got. I don't care how much money I have. It's going to be about all the relationships that I made and all those friends that I made over those years about their grinding and playing. And to me, like, uh, you, you, can't, you can't ever take any of that away from me. You can take all my money. You can take my trophies. You can take all that can mean nothing, but you can't ever take those relationships. And I've had, I mean, I just, I can't express to you. I can't tell any kid that wants to go do it. I just tell them, go chase it. It is, it is one of the greatest, if not the greatest lifestyles you could ever imagine. So I'm super blessed. I wouldn't change a thing. Hmm. So that's great to hear. Cause I, I, I guess a fair amount of people on here will come and say like, Hey, the lifestyle is not always was what people think it is. You know, there's a lot of travel. It's hard. It's stressful and all that. So I honestly don't get too many people that come on here and say the lifestyle is the greatest thing about, uh, about the job. I can't imagine. I mean, like my thing is that I could probably argue that with anybody is that yes. Okay. Are there, uh, problems like you check in your hotel room and you know, they don't have your room or you get the wrong bed or your flight has been canceled or, I mean, but you, you, you are playing a game for a living and you are chasing this little white ball around in, in, in maybe the most difficult game that's ever been created in my opinion. And just, and the challenges of that you're doing it with somebody who you're trying to beat their guts out right beside you. And then you're having a beer with them right afterwards. I mean, I just don't know that there's any other sport or any other lifestyle that I could even imagine doing that in. So, I mean, like, I just, uh, I, I get it. Like, but everybody has their struggles in their jobs or their occupations. And I just, I don't know. I always think to myself, I could have potentially done something different. I could have been something else, uh, but uh, I'm super grateful that I was able to do this. Like, and, and I'm glad. And like, anytime I have an, an opportunity to talk to a youngster who's like, hey, I really want to, you know, chase the tour, but I don't know if I'm good enough. I'm like, I sucked. I wasn't even close to being good enough, but I chased it and I believed in it and I did it and I surrounded myself with people who believed in me. And that's why I was able to do it. So, I mean, I'm like, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. I just think everybody's got this mold and they think, okay, if I don't swing like this, if I don't have this kind of club head speed, if I don't do this, if I don't do this, I'm not going to make it on a tour. And I just call BS on all of that. Well, how do you go from sucking to you know, winning twice on the PGA Tour? I know that's, that's relative, but I mean, I'm sure you, you're saying that in terms of, you know, you're competing against people a lot and, and getting defeated a lot. But what changed? I mean, how do you go from sucking to being a having a very long and successful PGA Tour career? I mean, I guess I when I say that is okay. I couldn't make. I barely could make the traveling squad on a University of Alabama golf team. And I look at that and I say, okay, everybody's in terms of what suck is relative, right? But like our our star player at the time uh, was Dicky Pride. Okay, so like, and I, I look at that and I'm like, and don't get me wrong, I love Dicky. We're very close friends and. Uh, but like, I'm like, this was all we were trying to do is achieve and, and beat this guy. And, uh, so I, c I couldn't even be a part of that team. Like I, I 
trouble qualifying and struggling to get on these teams. And so I'm, I'm looking at that like, all right, so I wasn't very good and I knew that, but if you were to say that, I, I think the only reason why I continued to do it is because every single year I loved it and I got just a smidge better. I mean, I went out on the mini tours after I hit, after I graduated college, once I hit this hole in one, I turned pro, but I stayed in school. And once I got my degree, I was like, I'm going to go chase on the mini tours. I was what they call a donator. I just gave him my thousand bucks and I, you know, I played, I didn't get a lot out of it. You know, I didn't win a lot and it, it took a long time till I kind of won some events. I got in, I uh, played on the Canadian PGA and on the uh, PGA tour of Canada and I had a little bit of success out there and, and it just kind of just kept saying, Hey, I think I can do this. I think I can do this. You know, I'm, I'm getting a little bit better. Um, I'm improving and, and I was enjoying the hell out of it. You know, I mean, I was having so much fun doing it. So it was easy to get up and go try to get better. Well, uh, you might be a good guy to ask about this just because you have, you know, you were on the pack and you were on the board and I want to get, I want to kind of talk to you about all that and, and the, the positives of that and the benefits of that. But what, what kind of, I'm not sure if you followed the PGL discussion at all or how close you have, but I'm, I'm curious as to what kind of cards the tour has regarding pension or anything like that, that it can play against some of these top players that may be flirting with this alternative golf league. I think that the tour uh, would totally have, I don't think that they can go back uh, and take anything away. Uh, from somebody who were to decide to go on if they were to decide to do this league. I've been following it a little bit. I know it's come back up in discussions recently uh, uh, about the new player league and just, I can't imagine how substantial it is. I, uh, I can understand that it could be really good uh, for potentially a couple years. But the thing that I think the tour would have total option and total control over is because you basically sign over your media rights to the tour. And I would believe that if this, if the only way to get onto this league would be potentially world rankings or through the tour itself, the tour could potentially say, hey, you want to play our tour? That's great. But it's kind of like if you do, uh, if you, 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 have, you also sign a non-compete, right? Like uh, for the newcomers that come in, they could be like, all right, hey, look, you can play our tour, but if you lose your tour card you are unable to compete in this league for X amount of years. And I think that it's potentially that they could draw up something legally that would allow guys, you know, initially you could get this thing going, but I think the feeder to get more people into it, I just don't see how it could be successful. I think the tour could stop that at some point. Well, how does that work, you know, if – Players are independent contractors and considered independent contractors, right? And you know the PGA Tour is a a charitable nonprofit organization. How do those two elements get combined? I guess how do they lock you in? I, I by the way I understand it is you know how the tour is providing playing opportunities for uh, you know the players, and the charitable aspect means that they're you know they're not paying taxes on it, but. How can they have a form of non-compete, I guess, is the question. And does the charitable organization's status legally prevent them from any of that? And I know you're not a lawyer, but having been on the board and on the pack, I'm wondering if that discussion has ever been had. I don't know. I, I do know this as an, as an independent contractor that plays the tour. I'm an independent contractor, but I still have to follow the rules and the guidelines that I signed when I agreed to be an independent contractor on the tour, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I still have to follow, the, I have to follow their stipulation and their rules. Like, it, I'm required to wear pants during the tournament rounds. If I show up in shorts, I'm not allowed to play. It doesn't matter how independent I am. I still have to follow those guidelines. So 
I'm not saying that they could cross that boundary of, and I don't know that from a standpoint of being a charitable organization and what that charitable and, and what those lines cross from a legal standpoint of how much you are able to control your entities involved in that. I don't know that, but I, I do know that like I, there are rules and regulations of which I have to abide by to be a part of the organization. And I think that's really smart. And I think that they can modify those rules and regulations uh, to help protect themselves and to help protect that charitable component. Because I believe if you, if you were to lose your star power, which I hope that we don't see that happen uh, because I really, if, if you're to lose your star power, then ultimately who gets, who is lost behind this? And which I think that people really truly don't understand is when the tour goes to a town, the amount of charities that are affected in that local community is astronomical. So during this whole COVID, where we lost all of that, the amount of charitable dollars that was lost in those communities was devastating because that's what they bank on every year when the tours come into town. So, I mean, they budget for those numbers and they, they really rely on that PGA Tour to show up and, and those charitable donations to help those small charities in those local towns. And so the, ultimately, those are the ones who are truly affected by it. And I hope that a few people making uh, a decision aren't going to, you know, I, I hope that they realize that if they do decide to, you know, to choose and leave and, and go play a Premier League. Mm hmm. Well, on that note, do you find it bizarre? I don't really know how how all this works with regard to you know the charter and all that stuff on on player purses. But since you know golf has returned, and you mentioned these charities that are kind of getting you know really set back in terms of all the money that they're not able to make from these tournaments, are you surprised that purse money has stayed the same and that you know the, the players are kind of going on as normal and making the same amount of money they normally make while the charities aren't? Do you do you find that balance to be a little bit weird? 100%. I, I find it extremely weird. And I find it weird from a business perspective. And I, I don't qu quite understand it all. I, w I did have some opportunities as a board member to see a few of the details, but not a tremendous amount. Because even as a board member, we really do rules and regulations, or we do anything that's uh, player related, we have nothing to do with the business side of any of those decisions that are made from television to corporate contracts, which makes sense because we're players. We understand competition related items, but not necessarily business related items. But what I'm shocked at and what, what I'm surprised of, and I don't know, maybe this is going on, but like the tournament sponsors uh, are still putting up the same amount of money, which I would have loved to see them say, okay, look, we're gonna reduce some of the purses. We're gonna throw more charitable dollars into these communities right now and help the communities that were uh, less or, or that were more affected, I guess, during COVID. And the tour would subsidize some of this income for these uh, organizations and then kind of back end them in like 10 years. So when the things kind of turned around, like if the title sponsor was required to pay $7 million, if the tour were to say, okay, look, why don't you know you this time you're only required to pay four million? We'll subsidize the other three. Two of that's going to go to charity, and then in our next initial contract, or you know if if you're down three million dollars and you have six years coming, we're just going to tack on you know a million bucks for the next three years and you'll be paid back. Does that make sense? Yeah. Am I kind of like I think if they rolled it in the back end and figured out this thing. I think it could have made a pretty big statement to some of these uh, financial companies just due to the fact that 
to be a sponsor of the PGA Tour, it's very difficult. I mean, uh, with everything that's involved, I mean, your demographics, who, you know, how much money you spend in the U.S., how much money uh, you spend marketing dollars uh, worldwide, all of these kind of issues. I mean, th you're really limited if you really are supportive of the PGA Tour or if if your company is a good fit for the tour. And I think the tour is kind of exhausted, <laughs> potentially, a lot of these uh, companies. And so if you lose one, you just don't have a massive pool to pull from. No, that's you're, that's exactly right. And that's where I'm wondering if all this stuff kind of works together with the threat of a, another league coming on with for a substantial amount of money. This would be the worst time ever to, to stop paying some of your top players uh, large amounts of money, which you know could potentially severely damage the PJ Tour in the long term. So I'm not even saying necessarily you know you need to short term cover these charities and, and focus on that because like like I said, it could hurt them greatly, greatly in the long term. Uh, it's just fine. It seemed like Jay Monahan's job got significantly harder very, very quickly as of the, the beginning of 2020. Absolutely. No question. Jay Monahan's job gotten way more difficult. And I mean, like I look at it as like how difficult a golf professional's job is, you know, he's got four five, six, seven hundred, maybe even a thousand members. And you got to try to please all these people, which is absolutely impossible. Well, Jay Monahan's in a situation where he's got a please uh, 40 you know some odd title sponsors and which is even in a more incredible task in my opinion and then he's got you know the the whole covid thing coming and now now the uh premier league kind of bouncing back in his face and so like i i just i hope that jay settles into a couple of nice glasses of wine every night and just calms himself down and but i will tell you this that jay monahan is a phenomenal uh human being and uh, i think his presence amongst the tour everyone loves him i think he's done a phenomenal job in his initial years and uh the best part about him is i he's a marketing guy he understands that uh, uh i think to a degree that maybe some of our past commissioners may not have and understanding the the marketing aspect of the tour and of the companies it's relationships with well i'd like to pick your brain on that because you know we are in the last year of this i don't know i can't even keep track anymore when the new tv deal really strikes up but it seems like we've been in this antiquated TV contract for quite some time. And it, it's, it seems at times it's hard to watch golf on TV. I don't know how much golf you watch on TV, but it, it does seem like there is this big marketing push. And I keep seeing commercials for the PGA tour when I'm trying to watch the PGA tour. I'm wondering what you as a player kind of think of what you think the golf on TV experience should be like. And if you think that it needs to change and will change in the, in the coming years. Okay, I, I have a maybe a slightly different perspective of this because if this is your business and you play on the PGA Tour, everyone used to always tell me, oh, I, all I got to see was every shot Tiger hit. I never got to see anybody else. I'm like, well, that's good because if, you, if all anybody ever saw was Tiger hit, Woods hit shots and all those corporate dollars went to because they knew eyes wanted to watch Tiger Woods play golf. I, I, I personally, being the little fish in the sea, don't care. I just want to play for $10 million every week. So I can understand where Tiger could be offended that like, hey, man, you're showing every shot. You're saying every word I say, like, hey, ease up you know, or pay me more. 
Like I get that. But being the little guy who's just in this massive pool and trying to dip my hand in the cookie jar every few weeks, I mean, it's a great scenario for me. So like it's a different <laughs> sure perspective. It <laughs> it's a completely different perspective than maybe somebody on the top end. And I, so it's hard for me to answer that question from their opinion. But from my opinion, it, I, I, I mean... Yes, I understand you need the commercials. We need to show because we need those dollars to be behind there to be able to play for the amount of money because I do, I truly believe at the end of a season uh, when a guy goes out and plays and I don't know, um, a, a high-end season would be, you know, 28, 30 events a year. And if he's the top earner and, you know, he's able to pull in, say, you know, 30 to $40 million in a top professional sport, I think that's relative. I think that, you know, when you look at what other athletes and sports their top guys are making compared to our sport, I, I mean, like, I think it's very difficult to do what these guys do. And so uh, I actually know how difficult it is. Now, I, I don't, I haven't played in the NFL, so I can't comment on that. And I know that's a difficult <laughs> occupation. I wouldn't want to get hit by some 350 pound lineman. I can tell you that. But um, so, I guess I would, I like to see that the tours becoming more relative in sport. I could say that. Yeah. And I, I, that's where I net out on. And I understand the need for the volume of commercials and all that, but I, it's more kind of a, you know, all boats rise potentially kind of thing. Whereas it's not even necessarily just the commercials, but you know, Bryson and Brooks are kind of going back and forth at each other. Right. Why do we have to beg for those two to get paired together? Like if this is an entertainment product, like we should, they should, the controversy of that should be embraced. And the strategy seems to be whitewash everything that's possible to whitewash and present this squeaky clean image where I'm wondering how big golf's fan base. And maybe the answer is like, look, we know that golf's fan base is never going to really grow. So we're going to appease the sponsors and do all that. But I would at least want to entertain the question of like, can we actually get, make this product way more exciting to watch and kind of embrace some of this chaos of that comes up at times. And in that situation, do all boats rise and do more sponsorship dollars flow into the sport and, and all this stuff. I might've been maybe watching too much formula one lately, but that's kind of where I would lo love to see the game go. Okay, me too. I love the fact that they're, uh, that we've got some controversy. I love the fact that there's some rivalries. I love the fact that these guys are able to say things in the media. I also think that if uh, I also know both of those players and have been, uh, not, not too personally, but have been fortunate enough to be around both of them, that if they're paired together, they could present a more cordial uh, atmosphere than if they're not paired together. So they still have room to create some controversy when they're not paired together. When they get paired together and you kind of watch, you're like, oh, these guys are gentlemen. They're nice. Like he's, you know, <laughs> uh, anymore. Like, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, to, so I kind of, I, I like that both things are happening. You know what I mean? Like that there is some separation and they, they let them jab at one another and that, you know, they can kind of go back and forth. And uh, last week I, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Uh, Brooks, you know, stepping aside saying, hey, there's ants you know, with the whole Bryson DeChambeau ant uh, debacle. So, like, I, I, I love that. I totally get that. Um, and uh, I, I, too, would like to see a, a little bit more uh, entertainment. I don't know that the tour is there yet. I do believe that it will come in the future, though. I can, I can totally see that because the, it's, it's evolved from the beginning, right? Like, all the way from when Jack and Arnie played to now. I mean, like... It's becoming a little bit more uh, yappy and kind of uh, so. Yeah, I think more of that is better. You're right. I t I totally do. Well, all right. So we you know we kind of 
danced around some pack stuff and some board stuff, but I, I honestly, if I had to explain the way, you know, all that stuff works, I don't think I could. So I'm hoping you can kind of help just lay that out for the listeners. And for one, just kind of what's the benefit or why would you, you know, as a player want to be on the pack or the board and kind of what roles do both of those, uh, you know, committees or whatever you want to call them? What are they, what are they, what are they, what's the purpose? Okay, so the pack is uh, uh, 16 players that are voted by um, your peers and you're put into different groups and that's based on where you, uh, whether you're a rookie this current year whether, and where you finished on the FedEx Cup or the money list in previous years. So you're broken down into these categories and out of those categories, you pick one um, as a vote every year and you put 16 people on the pack together. Out of the pack, you will have a chairman of the pack who will then eventually go onto the board. And on the board, there are four player directors so that you will serve a three-year term. And so they're constantly rotating all, sometimes there'll be two people that'll go on the board, sometimes just one. You must serve on the pack to be able to be eligible to go on the board for more than one, one year on the pack. On the pack, you serve every year. And you have to do it more than one time to be eligible to go on the board. Now, the PAC, it's interesting. What the PAC does is there's no real voting. There's no, it's a, it's, you, you, you get together uh, maybe every quarter and the tour brings up ideas to you saying, okay, here's some things that we've gotten from our sponsors. Here's some things that they would like to, what do you guys think? And they try to get their feedback from that. And then that whatever the pack presents to say so i'll tell you when zurich classic because this is a tournament that was uh it was uh just a regular tour event and they said hey we need to spice this up what can we do how can we do this well they came to the tour with the idea of can we do a team event and so the tour then presented that to the pack and the pack was like hey that sounds like a great idea sounds like some really cool things could happen from this so then the pack would go to the board, the four player directors on the board and say, hey, this is what we'd like to do. The board would look at it, potentially modify it. However, that might be into what the format is or you know, what, how, to, how to fill the categories or how, who gets to play, who doesn't. And then they would send it back to the pack and the pack would review it. And then they would send it back to the board. And during a board meeting, it would have to be a passed and approved. Does that make sense? Yep, that all makes so sense. So it's a very, it's, it, it is a process. And so to be on the pack, you do have a say. The problem with some of the pack is that, so the rest of the membership is asked, hey, if you have an issue, take it to a pack member. And then that pack member would bring that issue up at a board meeting or at a pack meeting. And then it potentially how far that could go, uh, it would go into the board. Now, I will tell you this, these are all guys who are currently playing. So their number one focus is playing. It's not on all these rules and, you know, they listen, they talk about it, but they don't want to sit in meetings for hours and hours. They want to go back to practice and they want to go to dinner. They want to do their thing. So they kind of move these meetings along. So the tour initiates the majority of information, which could come from players outside. And it is, there's a lot of instances that you might not ever think about, whether it be a medical situation or something that affected you personally, whereas you know, 90% of the people or 99% of the people never get, they're never affected by it. So there could be a rule or a potential thing that needs to be changed because, oh, well, we never thought that could happen or we, that scenario never uh, happened before. And so it's things like that that get changed and policies like that. But 
It's really only competition-related items. So we have no idea what these television contracts are going to be. We have no idea how the schedule is going to pan out. We have, we, and we have absolutely no say or anything to do with it. What? Uh, so you got to have some good examples, I'd imagine, of some really dumb, silly stuff that has come through the pack, and kind of also maybe in a, you can go either direction with this of some of the more serious items that you kind of dealt with or kind of saw go through uh, during your time on the pack. I mean, some of ninety percent of it was just dumb shit. I mean, to be honest, it was just it. None of it was really that super relevant to any of us. Uh, the big things like which recently happens like cut size going to 65 and ties. They've tried to do that every year. Now, you got to understand the tour is the business side of it. So the tour is saying, and they're getting information from their tournament staff or the rules officials saying, hey, we got too many guys playing. We can't fit all these players in to squeeze it in from TV. We got to cut the amount of guys that make the cut or we got to cut the amount of guys that are going to get starts on uh, so that we can do this for television. Well, every tour member is like, no, you know, you, we, we don't want you to cut anything. We want you to get, add more. So, you know, th they oppose and fight a lot of that. So, though, like, um, while, while I was on the board and while I was on the pack, they tried to get the reduce the cut size to 65 in ties. And we adamantly said no. For some reason, they started the number with 70. We just believed it was a fine number. Work around it. <laughs> you know, figure some things out and make it happen. And obviously... When, they, when the board changes and they get a board that's more conducive to doing, making change, they're going to bring it up again. So, uh, and obviously that's what happened and they changed it to 65 and ties. Now, I only think that affects uh, pension. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so we go all the way back to the pension thing. So the guy who's grinding to make that cut, who finishes, you know, tied for 69th versus tied for 64th, that's, I mean, that's a big difference. That's, you know... It's a small number as far as the shot or, you know, half a shot or a quarter a shot or whatever you break it down to be. But it's it's a big number when you talk about a 15-year career. It, it could potentially change those numbers drastically. We won't know that until 15 years from now, you know. For sure. I hear guys talk about this a lot. And, you know, you're someone that has, you know, kept their card for a long, long period of time. How real is the threat of losing your card in pro golf? I mean, we see other sports, you know, there's obviously a lot of short-term contracts in a lot of sports, but there's obviously a lot of long-term ones as well. Yet in golf, it really can go away very, very quickly. How often is that something that you thought about during the, you know, the, the big parts of your career? And how real is that threat for a lot of people? It's, it, it is so real it's amazing how real it is. And especially for a guy like myself, you know, who I only won twice. So only two times that I think, oh, I don't have to worry about my card. I mean, like, and you think about that, and every other year I'm thinking, whew, got to grind this thing out. Got to play harder. Got to play more. Got to do whatever I can just to kind of grind it out and hang in there. And to a guy who we go all the way back that wasn't very good. You know, that just was trying to get better and better. I mean, that's a, that's a hard thing to do. And I think that now golf, the guys who are playing the tour, at least when I played the tour, there was quite a bit of separation. I mean, Tiger Woods was so dominant. He was so much better than anybody else. And now you look at the world number one and it changes every, like, you know, it seems like every six minutes, you know what I mean? So like, it's like the, the, everybody is tighter. So I think that it's probably more real for the guy who's getting out on tour now, that's like, whew. I mean, everybody's super good. I mean, and so, and everybody's really close. And, you know, technology's allowed that to happen. And uh, so I think that, you know, it's probably more 
uh, prevalent and more real now than it was for me. But still, it is stressful. I mean, you got to think like, I don't know how many people go to job and, or go to work. I guess they do. But and it's all 100% totally based on performance every single year. And if you don't perform, you're done. I think what makes it especially hard for these guys is the fact that there is before when I played, I had Q school. So if I finished outside, you know, the top 125 inside the 150, I could go back to the final stage of Q school and it was just six rounds of golf. Well, now you got to go spend a whole nother year on the Corn Ferry Tour, which is a whole nother topic. I mean, what are we calling the, the Corn Ferry Tour for? I mean, like I, I like I love the tour. I, I, I mean, and I understand sponsors, but I think the tour missed a boat a long time ago. And even more so recently, when the King passed away, I think we should have called the tour, the Arnold Palmer Tour, the Palmer Tour, the AP Tour presented by. I think would, would, so we always had a legend or the Nicholas or the Hogan. You know, it used to be called the Hogan Tour. I don't understand why we ever got away from that. But, um, you know, uh, anyhow, whole other subject. We could talk hours on that too. But uh, <laughs> so, and I think that's what makes it really difficult for these guys keeping their card is because not only is it the stress of, uh, the whole year long, but now you got to go back and you got to downgrade for another year. And I can tell you last year I went out and I played a couple of corn fairy tour events and I probably will play some in the future, uh, you know, to get prepared, uh, to play the champions tour. But I, uh, it's, it's very difficult. It's really hard to go from when you're in the big circus, it's hard to go back down and, uh, travel around to the carnivals from town to town. I mean, it's just, it's a completely, uh, different atmosphere and environment. I don't know. I feel for, I, I, I really do. I feel like I played in a great generation. I played with the greatest player to ever play the PGA Tour, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of glad that uh, my time is not over, but my time is transitioning maybe into something else. Well, I can't tell if this is something that I'm just learning more and more the more years I do this, but or if it's something that is truly evolving in the game of golf, you might be able to answer this, or you definitely will be able to answer it much better than I can, but is the volume of professional golfers slash really amazing players bigger and bigger every year? I mean, it seems to me, and I, the some of the guys I play with down here that can't and don't have status anywhere and can go out and post 61s, it just blows my mind as to the actual number of capable professional golfers there are out there that don't have status. So if you see, does that something that also kind of contributes to how difficult it is to keep a card for this long? And do you, is that actually the reality that it has expanded that much? 100% is totally the reality. And we see that in the world rankings, right? Because like we said earlier, I mean, we see it, it's transitioning. I mean, these guys are so close and they're so good. And that depth goes all the way down into the local country club where they're like, I mean, we got a guy, you know, we got a member of the club. Everybody's like, well, this guy's going to, you know, make it on tour. And I'm like, it's so difficult. It's so, it's, it's amazing how difficult it is. Just like you said, you know, guys that can just go post the low numbers and, and they just have nowhere to play and they have nowhere to showcase their talent. And it's really, really difficult. And uh, yeah, I, I totally think that I believe it's the, lots of different reasons, but technology and the athlete. The athlete is better today. There's no question the athlete better. And so, and the athlete enjoys the game of golf and loves the game, loves the challenge of it. So you're not only getting uh, technologies helping everyone, you know, kind of bridge that gap to get closer and closer, but the athlete is so much better and closer and closer than it is. And so that just makes everything just even tighten up even more. And I see this even at, at amateur golf, like at my level of the tournaments I'll go play. I, 
it's not good. It's not even close to good enough to just be as good as other people. Like you got to go beat them. And that is, and if there's like nine, 10, 20 guys in a field, maybe 50 guys in a field that are just better players than you, you know how hard it is to beat like a huge volume of those guys. Like that's just what it just like immediately I get in there and I'm like, oh gosh, if I had to do this for a living. And of course, I'm not even talking about talent level. I'm just saying like, if I had to go out and just beat a ton of people for a living, that would wear me out. I think it does. I think it wears people out. And I think that the longevity of careers were able to do that for 25 years because the separation between number one and 150 on the money list was so much greater and than it is now. Therefore, those guys could, you know, not play well for a week and still be in the top 10 or 15 or 20 or whatever it is. And they still feel like they beat a lot of the majorities. That's not going to happen anymore. And so I think that wearing of it out will just wear out the career a little bit quicker. Yep. All right, last one. We're going to get you out of here on this. Usually you don't wait till the last question to ask somebody about Tiger, but do you, you ever play with Tiger? You ever play the practice round or, or tournaments or what, what What have your Tiger experiences been like? I have played with Tiger multiple times on the PGA Tour and I have some great uh, Tiger Woods stories and, uh, and, and perfect for your podcast because first, I'm going to start with the very first time. I'm going to tell you two. Very first time I ever played with Tiger Woods, Bay Hill, I get paired with him on Thursday, Friday, and it's 8.40 in the morning on a Thursday morning, routine off number one at Bay Hill. And, you know, obviously, first time you're playing with Tiger, you're jacked up, you're nervous, you're like, man, what's he going to say? How is he? You know, you have no idea. You just read everything. You're like, he's, I mean, like, seriously, you know, like, I, I don't know. I mean, he, he he's so big in the game. And, and it was, um, I would have said this probably would have been 06. So really at, at, a, at a pretty good time in his career. And we get up on the first tee at Bay Hill. I mean, there are, there's, I, I can't count people, but I'm going to exaggerate and say there's 8,000 people on the, uh, on the whole hole, just lined up 10 deep all the way down. And I'm like, it's nine o'clock. I said, what the hell do these people do? I mean, they do nothing. I mean, like, do they not have jobs? I mean, why are they here? And Tiger walks up, and I'm like, whew, nervous as all get out. And I'm like, hey, Tiger, uh, Jason Bone, I just want to let you know, I brought a few of my friends out. I hope it doesn't bother you. And he just kind of chuckled and was like, as long as I keep it down, I'm fine. And uh, so that was my first, that was my introduction to Tiger. And, you know, he is uh, an awesome uh, person on the golf course. I can't give him enough credit. He is super professional, super cordial, under, and appreciates a great golf shot, a good shot. I mean, and will compliment you and just like, I, I can't praise him enough at the way his actions and the way he, how professional he is as an athlete i love that every time i had the opportunity to play with tiger i thoroughly enjoyed that opportunity and my next tiger Woods stories is not maybe as good a one but we are this is when tiger is coming back from all of his uh misfortunes in his life his 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 bad decisions and he this might have been maybe the second event back after the incident with his wife in the car and we're at the Players Championship, and I get paired with Tiger, and it's Sunday, and it's probably 10.30 in the morning. And once again, those grandstands behind the players, I mean, you know, it's a major championship in my opinion, and we're standing up there, and I mean, I'm nervous as I'll get out again just because it's Tiger, you know, and I just – and the whole situation, you know, he hasn't been he hasn't been playing. I mean, there's been – you know, there's so much stress on this man and, and, and all these – and everything, you know. And uh, so we tee off, and the golf course is playing extremely tough. I mean, it's bouncy, it's rock hard, it's, 
and you know we kind of hit some squarely shots and we get off to kind of a rough start and you know maybe a bogey here and then we birdie the second and we are uh and you know he's 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 like he, he starts talking to me about the golf course and like how great it is and he's like i wish we could play this from thursday on he said this would be the true test of a champion and i just i just was absorbing all of this because i didn't look at i don't it's so funny when you you think you think well and you think you're thinking right and then you're listening to the like the great talk and you're like holy cow he like I'm like this is hard as shit. I don't want to play like this. I want to make birdies and you know and make it kind of stress free. I don't want to be hitting good sh iron shots in the middle of the green and then bouncing off and me having to chip. I'm like that's that. that uh. So it's it's funny the difference in mentality. So anyhow, I managed to uh, hack up the third hole, make a double bogey, and I just left the shot in the bunker. And it was just oh, I was just like oh. And then you're doing it in front of tiger you know like and you're just like i mean he's just looking at you like, this poor chump came in a bunker shot you know and you're like oh shit so we go to the next hole number four and we tee off and we we, we both hit it down there and we're walking down the fairway now i got i'm gonna use the same words and he looks at me and he says fuck you bone and i'm like whoa I'm like, where'd that come from? Because we've had like all these great discussions. And I was like, did I say something? And I think, I don't know, but I think he was just like, okay. He just saw I was, you know, I made double bogey. I was, you know, and maybe he was just trying to break the ice and call the conversation. And I had no idea how to react to the situation. So I just kind of looked at him and I was like, well, buddy, from what I read, you might like to. So I don't really know how to handle that. And, I mean, he absolutely lost it. I mean, he just absolutely lost it. And it was it was pretty – it was great. Like, he kind of chuckled, laughed at it. And then, you know, he said it again to me and just kind of, you know, you know kind of punched me in the shoulder. And I was just – like, we kind of laughed. And three holes later, we're on the seventh tee. He blocks it way to the right out in the trees. And um, all of a sudden – uh, he comes walking out of the trees and he's like, I'm done. And I'm like, what? He reached out and hurt my hand. He, he, he reached out to shake my hand and I shook his hand. And he kind of flinched. And I was like, oh, no. I was like, it's his wrist. And I'm like, is it your wrist? He goes, no, no, it's my neck. He said, I just, I, I, uh, he said, I'm in so much pain, I can't play. And he said, I'm sorry, I'll, you know. And so he had called, uh, well, actually, he had security and the security had a cart and they, put him in the cart and off he goes and if you've never watched 8,000 people leave a green so fast in your <laughs> life because I couldn't believe like I had hit the green and I'm standing there and I'm lining up my putt and when I looked up everybody was gone there were two people left and it was my mom and my dad and that is no lie and I just thought how the hell can they get out of here so fast I, I don't take that long to read a putt I mean so it just it's it's kind of a little bit demoralizing to say well there wasn't really that many people there to watch me so um other than mom and dad and i proceeded later that day to hit my mom in the ankle so uh <laughs> i let tiger have it in the future when we got paired together again i joked with him and said i hope you're going to finish because uh you know i mean the last time i hit my mom in the ankle after you left and you know and but he i i think he's got a good sense of humor i think you know he understood I think that he understood I was just trying to joke with him and say, hey, look, man, I feel for you. I hate it. I hate it for him. We had a conversation about him one time and his children and my children. We were playing at the memorial, and I said, hey, I said, man, there's a great playground right across the street in this mall. You ought to take the kids over there. And he looked at me and said, I wish I could. And, and I'm just, that, 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 stuff like that just breaks my heart, you know, because I'm like, 
of all the things, like all the, uh, all the money and all the trophies and all. Like I looked at that and I was like, you know, this is the one time that all those majors and all of that fame and all, it, 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 I, I wouldn't have wanted it. Because I mean, the, you know, like it's, and I just, sometimes you can't comprehend that, you know, you can never think of it. So, but I respect him. I love that he's back. I hope that he continues to play well. I hope he continues to win majors. I hope that he can break records. Uh, he's done so much for me and my family indirectly that I can't thank him enough. Hmm. Well, well, did you ever find out what the source of the original fuck you bone was? I ne never did. Never did. I have no clue. <laughs> I, 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 and honestly, I, I keep thinking about that. And I think to myself, he was just really trying to like settle me down. He yeah. was trying because I had just made a double and I was struggling and the golf course was hard and I think he was just trying to get my mind in a place. So I think he was doing that for me, which maybe not, maybe if we had this conversation and Tiger was on the other end, he'd be like, ah, you know, I was just, whatever. I mean, so I don't know, but I honestly believe in my heart that I think that's what he was trying to do. And I think he would do that. I think, he, I think he's cordial enough and professional enough to say, you know, like, I want this guy to perform well, too. I just want to beat the shit out of him in the end. You know, <laughs> I don't want him to beat me, but I want him to play well. I, I don't think Tiger ever wanted to win anything where somebody didn't play well. I think he always wanted them to be at their A game and then him just thump them because that just made him more confident. Well, I lied because I do have one last question. I just thought of this. I, I, I hadn't. I honestly can't remember who told me this. I think it was, it was definitely before I knew you at all. But somebody had asked you, the, like a rookie had asked you a question or something when they were playing with you, and said, "You know, how often are you aiming at flags versus aiming at the center of the green?" And I, I, I could. I'm, I'm hoping I remember this right. But some, you said something along the lines of, "Are, are you kidding me? I, I got two kids to feed. I'm aiming center of the green every time." One, does that sound like something you would say? And two, if so, why? Okay, so I, it sounds like something I would have said. Yeah, for sure. Uh, definitely. And it also sounds like that's the kind of the mentality that I had with the game of golf as far as uh, the business side of things. Uh, I played golf like I would play poker. Um, whatever I was dealt with is kind of how I just played the game. And so lots of times for me and my strike and the way that things are going, I couldn't fire that many flag sticks because if I did, I'd short side myself. My short game wasn't maybe tidy enough that week. And so, and then there were times when I was kind of on. And so I did, I definitely fired at flag sticks, but it, it sounds like something I could have said and something I could have said in a light way, but with some meaning. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, like, I could totally see myself, like, yeah, aiming at the... Uh, but I also would tell you this. If I had a chance to win, I would never aim at the center of the green, ever. I would always take the chance because I would be, you know, if I go on, if I would go all in, ace-king suited every time. I mean, I just would. I just would take my chances. So that's... Um, but well, that, the more I learn about competitive golf, the more I understand playing to fat sides of greens. That's why I asked that. I, I, I think there's a, a ton, a ton to that as far as uh, how that all works out stat wise. But uh, no, that all makes sense. So, all right, man, I know you got a crazy busy week. Um, we appreciate the time. I know the listeners are going to love this and uh, we will have you back sooner than a year. I'm not waiting a year again before you come back as long as you're up for it. 
No, man, I love this. I absolutely love chatting about golf, and I love sharing my opinions, even though uh, 90% of them are worthless, but I don't care. I really enjoy it, and I just want, uh, I mean, I enjoy everything you guys do. I mean, you really are putting a spin on golf that needs to be out there. You really, it, it, I love it. I love listening to all your stuff. I love hearing all the opinions, everybody's, the sources, and you guys uh, definitely do your research, so I appreciate that very much. Well, thanks, man, and uh, enjoy the week this week, and uh, we'll chat soon. All right, you too. Safe travels. Cheers. See you. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. Yeah, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. 